Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he constantly used short stories or parables to communicate spiritual truths to the crowds that gathered to hear him. By telling parables, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to Jesus' disciples, but they would be hidden from his opponents. Listen to this talk from the parable series as we dive into some of Jesus' most memorable stories. Good morning. Why don't we take a minute to just pray before we jump into our subject today. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge that we need to hear from you. I think as a nation, as a church, as individuals, O Lord, we need your direction, and we need to listen to you, O Lord. And I just pray you give us a heart to do that, because your word is life for our path. It's a light showing us the way to go. And we recognize we need you. Speak to us through our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When my twin brother was 19 years old, he decided that he wanted to make a lot of money through real estate. In fact, his goal was to become a millionaire by the age of 30. And he heard about this class that he could take where he would learn how to buy real estate and then structure it so that other people paid the mortgage for you and you'd come out ahead. And so he took the course and it actually worked. Uh, He had a little money to start with, and he put that down as a down payment for a kind of a fixer-upper type of house and was able to buy it, but he structured the loan so that at the end of that, uh, when it came to the closing, he got all the money back, all the money he'd put down on it. And then at this point, because he had bought a house that was worth so much more than what he paid, he suddenly had equity. And so on paper, he was looking pretty good. And he decided that he was going to buy a second house. And all the properties he bought after this, he didn't have to put any money down. But he bought a second property. And and after he did this, and shortly after this, uh, the realtor started coming to him. He'd get a phone call saying, hey, I've got another property. And this realtor was associated with a local bank. And so the two kind of worked hand in hand. And so when this realtor would come with a property that was available, the financing was all but guaranteed. And so by the time that my brother was 25 years old, he owned five single-family homes. He, he owned three duplexes. He owned a six-apartment or six-unit apartment complex. He owned two parcels of land, and he owned five to seven cars. He liked sports cars. And he was well on his way to becoming a millionaire by the age of 30, but then he made a big mistake. He decided to form a construction company. I think it was called Rehab Incorporated. And I think, I think he did it, although I didn't ask him this, but I think he did it mostly to fix his own properties, but also he would do other jobs. But he partnered with another guy in this business venture, and it was someone who was not a Christian. It was someone who really lacked character. And this person had promised that he would take care of half of the, the bills And so they took out a loan together, but when it came time to pay the loan off, this guy said, I can't pay you anything. I can't give you any money. And this might have worked for one or two months, but my brother found himself in this horrible situation. He could not afford to pay both halves of that particular construction loan. On top of it, even though he was bringing bringing in at that time $10,000 a month in his rentals, which back in the 80s was a pretty good sum of money, It still wasn't enough to cover all of his expenses. He found out that things started to break down in his various properties, and he didn't have the money to fix them. 
So someone, maybe their hot water heater went out and he couldn't replace it. And so what would happen? Well, it, it, people started leaving some of his properties and suddenly now he wasn't bringing in as much every month. And he found himself at this crisis point. It was so bad at, at the age of 25. He was still living at home at this time. He was going to get married, I think, a year later. But he was living at home and he did something he had never done before. He went sleepwalking one night. He walked into my parents' bedroom and he told them, I need $5,000 immediately. And you know, it kind of freaked them out, like, what are you talking about? But the next morning they asked him about it and he said, I don't remember walking in your room and saying that, but it's true. He said, I need $5,000 right away or I'm going to be in big trouble. And I don't know where my parents came up with the money, but somehow they managed to get that money together and save the day for just a little bit. But things continued to spiral out of control. And at a certain point, he realized that the only option he had was to declare bankruptcy, which was a very embarrassing thing for him to do. But he didn't, real, he didn't think he had any other choice. He ended up defaulting on all of his loans. And suddenly this dream of being this millionaire by the age of 30, you know, just completely fell apart. Now, you might hear the story and you might think, oh, that's unfortunate or too bad for him or it's kind of a sad story. But if you talk to my brother about it, he'd say that was the best thing that could have happened in his life. He is grateful that he went bankrupt. He was grateful that it unfolded the way he did. And here's why. He said that wanting to become rich and this goal in his life had become like an idol to him. It was all-consuming. All he could think about was getting wealthier and wealthier. It, was his, it had become his whole life. You know, and as a Christian, he knew that's not the way it's supposed to be, but he had just been so consumed by all of this, and now he was kind of set free from it. And he told me he realized that, you know, you can't take it with you. He realized that there are more important things in life than, than being rich. And it changed the whole direction of his life. Now, my brother's doing fine now. He's like in an executive position at a manufacturing company. But my brother understood that he had become proud in what he was doing. He, he realized that he was proud of his accomplishments, proud of his houses and lands, everything he owned, proud of his cars and everything. And those are not the things that really matter in life. Now, I think all of us can relate to at least the desire to want to be rich or wealthy. And I think we've all wanted that at some time, to say, well, I wish I had more money. I don't, I've never met anyone that said, well, I've got enough, so don't give me any more. Keep it. We, all want to, we, we don't want this. I can see this desire, and there's, no, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. I've heard ministers preach sermons before about the fact that if you're wealthy, it's like you're in sin or something. No, no. As we'll see in a minute, if you're wealthy, it's because God has entrusted things to you. And in Scripture, we have different ones who had means that just made a difference. Even in the life of Jesus, that Mary who broke that perfume over Jesus' head, my resources indicate that that was worth $50,000 in our day and age is what it would have cost. She was an incredibly wealthy woman, but she used her wealth in that way. And Jesus, of course, was buried in the tomb of someone who was wealthy. But there's a danger to having wealth. There's a danger to pursuing wealth. Paul wrote about this in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. As I read it, notice all the strong descriptive words that Paul used. He said, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation. So first of all, this idea just they 
fall in this, uh, this kind of a temptation. A trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. I just see someone being plunged into like a pool that's called ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, it's a strong word, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. They've pierced themselves. They've done it to themselves because of their desire, their pursuit. It says they've wandered away from the faith. I know some that this is exactly what happened to them. Well, they set aside everything of the life to come and gave their life entirely to the things of this world. Now, if we're not to pursue wealth, what are we to pursue? What's better? And Paul says it in the next verse. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, he says, but you, man of God, run from these things. Now, that's not what we think about when it's like pursuing wealth, that we should actually run away from it. But Paul saw the danger involved. He said, run from these things and then pursue what? Righteousness. Give your energies to godliness, to faith and love. Give yourself to love, endurance and gentleness. These are, these are the things that are valuable. They're not tangible. They're intangible. But they're infinitely of greater worth than the things of this world. Now, today we're going to continue our series on the parable of Jesus. And the, the Bible editors in my study Bible have put a title on this particular parable we're going to look at. And they call it the parable of the rich fool, which is really pretty strong language, but you'll see why he was considered a fool. Let's begin reading, though, in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. We read, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. Now let's stop here for a moment. If you go back a, about a dozen verses to the beginning of this chapter, you'll discover that Jesus was with a very large crowd. Now Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 goes this way. A crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. I don't know where anywhere else in the Gospels where you read this, that there were so many people just surrounding him that they were stepping on each other and trampling on one another. And, and the commentators say about this, that phrase, many thousands, it refers to usually a number of 10,000 or more. And so you've got this huge crowd. Now, why do I bring that out? Because if you look at what was happening here, you realize immediately how wrong these two guys were to approach Jesus. Jesus is with this, this massive crowd. He's in the middle of doing an amazing work. Of course, he's the Messiah. Come, he's got, we, we know, of course, he had, was going to have three years or so. But here he is teaching about the kingdom of heaven and pointing people to God and laying out the path in which you should live. And he was just talking about all these important things and they were spiritual things. And then somebody makes their way through this trampling crowd and manages to get right up to, next to Jesus and and he asks about this financial question, like, tell my brother, please, you know, to, to share the inheritance with me, as if that really mattered. But it demonstrates that this guy, he's just missing what is, matters, right? I mean, it just seems like it as I look at the story and in the context, it's like you're, you're missing out. Now's not the time to be asking about these things. He's thinking about all these 
physical things. Now, in biblical times, people would do this if they regarded someone as a rabbi or teacher. If they had a legal question or they had something that was important to ask, they would, they would go to a rabbi or whatever to get the answer. Jesus' initial answer is that I'm not, I'm not your arbiter. Nobody, you know, designated me to be the one to decide this for you. And then, well, anyway, let's pick up the story in verse 13 again, where we read, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So in the middle of this wonderful scene, you've got this going on. Now, we don't know what all was happening. Obviously, the older brother was the one who was to administrate the estate. Dad had passed away, apparently. And, and we don't know exactly what the issues were behind this request, why the younger brother said this, you know, tell him to share with me. But it could have been one of three things. It's, it is possible that the older brother didn't want to give his younger brother anything. That's possible. He might have thought, Dad's passed away and I'm not giving you a penny. Very unlikely. I can guarantee you that's not, not really what happened here. So the second thing that might have happened here is that the, the younger brother was asking for a, a bigger percentage. And this might have been the case. In biblical times, the firstborn son would get two portions and the second son would get one portion if there were two boys in the household. Because the firstborn son was taking on this role as like patriarch of the family. He was given double, I think, partly to, to take care of others. In either case, though it's possible, the younger guy said, I want it to be split 50-50. Tell him to share it with me. But most likely what was happening here is that he wanted all his money now so he could take off. Most likely what he was doing is what the prodigal son did. Give me my inheritance so I can get out of this place. And of course, this would have had implications for the older son as well, because it's like, you're leaving me to do all the, all the work around here, you know, that we're in this together. But the younger man wanted to take off. And so Jesus again said, I'm not the arbiter of this issue, but then picking it up in verse 15, he said this, watch out and be on guard against all greed. And this means all kinds of greed. Uh, there are different kinds of greed out there. So watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Now, the, the phrase watch out is plural in the Greek language in which this was written. In other words, he wasn't just talking to the one guy who asked the question or was trying to get a decision. He was talking to at least both of the brothers and, of course, all the crowd as well. But he's basically probably talking to the two boys. You, both of you, you plural, watch out for all kinds of greed. Both of you. Because, and then he said something really profound. He said, one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Now that's, that is profound. He's saying real life is not found here. Real joy, real happiness, real wealth is not found in the accumulation of things that are perishable. This is not, this is not where you should be looking. Now, that message is in stark contrast to our world today. Because I think if you ask the average person today, what's the goal of life? It's to get rich, get as much money as I can, you know, get settled in so I can be comfortable, so I can enjoy myself, live a nice life. I mean, that, what, is, what is our goal here in this life but to have as much as we can? And yet Jesus is saying, listen, it's not found there. If you want real life, it's not found in the accumulation of things. 
And then Jesus shared a parable to illustrate the foolishness of basing your whole life on, on the accumulation of wealth. Beginning in verse 16, Luke 12. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? What a horrible problem. I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, let's stop for a moment and pull away from the parable. I want to ask you what you would do if suddenly you found out that uh, you were going to receive a $5 million inheritance and you found out it was all going to be tax-free. So you're going to get this, this disbursement of $5 million. Now, how would you go about deciding what to do with it? You know, I think most of us would probably get some kind of a financial advisor or an accountant to look over things and make recommendations. I suppose we'd hire someone maybe to do some of those kinds of things. But what would factor into how you would use that money? What would you spend it on? What things would factor into your decision on where to put it and where not to? You know, these are very important questions. And of course, if you ask people these things on the street, I've seen these surveys before, you know. If you got a million dollars, what would you do? Or $10 million, or if you won the Powerball or whatever, what would you do? You know, and, and some of those answers are just ridiculous. I know they go through about 10 to get to one that's the most ridiculous. You know, well, I'd pay off my, my Chevy. You know, it's just small dreams that people have about these things. But what would decide what, what you would do with it? This guy got it wrong. In our story, he got it wrong. So wrong that he's called by, again, the editors of my Bible, the parable, he's a rich fool. What did he do wrong? Four things I want to suggest here today. Number one, he only thought about himself. When this happened, his thought was only on himself and what he would do for his own comfort. The words I, I'll, or I will, me, and myself, appear 10 times in three verses. If you look at the story just through the lens of the pronouns he used to decide what to do with the money, you'd arrive at the right conclusion. His heart was in the wrong place. Let's look at 17 to 19 again, and I highlighted those words. He thought to himself, of course, there's the problem already, but he thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops... I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now, one thing to note about this story, and I think it is significant, is that the guy was already wealthy before this happened. Jesus said a rich man had a bumper crop. Now, I think that does factor in somewhat in this story. Because this is the guy that didn't have any needs. In fact, he had an abundance already. He had more than he needed, and then all of a sudden he gets this excess. And what does he choose to do with the excess? And maybe what should he have done? What I don't see him doing is considering for one moment what maybe God would want him to do. I don't see him asking God, you know, hey, you've blessed me in this way. 
How, how do you want me to use this? What might advance your, your kingdom and your ways in this world? He doesn't, that doesn't seem to enter his mind at all or, or the needs of other people. I don't see him thinking about anyone else like, well, boy, God's really blessed me. Maybe I can be a blessing to someone else. None of that comes to his mind. He just thinks about himself. And Jesus called this greed. He's telling a story about greed. Greed is defined by R.H. Stein as an insatiable desire and lust for more and more. You know, greed is, I've got, but I want more. I'd like more, more. And again, I don't think we're ever satisfied. Who says, I finally got all the things I want, and so I'm completely satisfied? No, we, we love to add to what we have, and it's just wanting more, but this insatiable desire, like whatever I have is just not enough. But... He didn't think of anyone else but himself. That was the first thing he did wrong. Second, he didn't realize he was the steward and not the owner of all he had. Now, I think all of us have to wrestle with this. The question is, does what we own belong to us? Is it really ours or is it on loan? Now, I want to show you some verses here, but I want to suggest here that it, it, it doesn't really belong to us. Now, in this parable, the guy thought it did. He called them, he said, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. And so he, he clearly had in his mind that I'm the owner of these things, but are we really the owner of the things that we have? In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14, we read, the heavens, even the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. God is the creator of all things. Everything belongs to the Lord, Deuteronomy 10, 14. In the New Testament, we read everything was created by Jesus, but also that it was created for Jesus, that it all belongs to him. We're merely stewards. Things have been entrusted to us to manage. Now, if you doubt this, try to take it with you. You see, that's the, the greatest indication that it never belonged to us in the first place, that we were only ones who had ownership of it for a certain period of time. Go back to the verse here. Notice what I've underlined in Luke 12, 20 and 21. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Of course, the polite answer is not yours. Because we all leave it behind, you know. Maybe, maybe you've heard the story of the rich man. Someone asked about this rich man who had passed away, and they asked, how much did he leave? And the answer was, all of it. And, and that's exactly what's true. And so if we have a lot, which all of us, by the way, in this room have a lot compared to other countries, you know, most people that I know, when they go on to a third world country and we do missions work or whatever else, one of the most things that impresses them the most is they have so little and yet they're still happy. But if you have a lot, it's because God has entrusted it to you. But remember, to whom much is given, much is required. It's, God's going to hold us accountable for the things that he has entrusted to our care. And so God has entrusted more to some. He's entrusted less to some. For whatever reasons, God is sovereign. And we realize that, okay, then it's an issue of, of how am I stewarding what God has entrusted to my care. And don't forget that God is the one actually that gave you the ability even to raise money or be wealthy. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, Moses said this, you may say to yourself, of course he's quoting God, you may say to yourself in your own heart, which is what people would say, my power 
my ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember, don't forget, the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. If you have amazing gifts and talents that allow you to do certain things where you are, you are greatly rewarded for your contribution in this world, praise God for it, but don't forget, he's the one that blessed you with the ability to do this. We have examples of this in Scripture where people forgot this lesson, like Nebuchadnezzar, who was the first world leader of Babylon, and over the entire known world, he stood at the, the, the top of his palace on this flat roof of his palace. He looked out, and he said, look what my hands have done. Look at all I've accomplished with my amazing skill and strength and abilities and everything else, and in that moment, God took it away from him. He suffered from insanity, according to the book of Daniel, for a period of time, probably seven years, until he said he would acknowledge that if you have anything that comes from God, all of Nebuchadnezzar's successes were because God made it possible. God opened the way for him. God is the one who enriched him. God is the one who blessed him. God gives and God takes away. And so Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive from God? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Or James said, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so we just need to be mindful of this. The difference, of course, this will make is if I think my stuff is mine and I've got a lot, it will it'll lead to pride. But if I approach it all from the perspective, the Lord is the one who's blessed. The Lord has entrusted this to me. Then I approach it with gratitude and thankfulness, and also I don't hold on to it quite so tightly. But this guy got something else wrong. In addition to the fact he only thought of himself, and he didn't realize he was a steward, or he was the steward, not the owner, the third thing he got wrong is he didn't live as if he was going to die someday. I have a counselor friend of mine I was talking to recently. I've known him for 40 years. And his, his wife and his daughter both uh, got cancer, and his daughter, his, her cancer is pretty aggressive, and he said, every day now I've been living with um, death. And um, he says, I wake up, you know, and I think about it, and he said, everybody should do that. Everybody needs to do that, because it's, he says, change the way he views everything. This idea that she may be gone tomorrow or we may have a short amount of time or whatever, these kinds of thoughts suddenly redirected where he gave himself to, what mattered in his life. He began to think that way. Now, this is wisdom thinking. Because this guy got it wrong. He thought in his heart, well, I'm going to store up for many years to come. It never occurred to him, this might be it. Moses wrote one psalm in the Bible. I've, I've always found that fascinating. You've got, you got David's psalms, and then there's one in there from Moses. And, and Moses, in Psalm 90, he talks about the, the, the brevity of life. And he says, you know what life is like? It's like a, a, a blade of grass that springs up in the morning when the sun first comes out, but then in the heat of the day, it shrivels up and dies. By nighttime, it's brown. By, by nighttime, it's dead. And he said, that's the way it is with people. And then he made this conclusion in verse 12 of Psalm 90. He said, teach us to number our days carefully so we may develop wisdom in our hearts. You see, being mindful of the fact we may die soon impacts how we approach life itself. What if you knew you had one month? What if you knew you had one week? What if you knew if you had one day, what would we do? Now, we don't like to think that way. We don't want to think those kinds of thoughts. But it would inform us because in truth, we should live every day as if it were the last one. Then we're not going to be 
ashamed of the way that we spent that last day if every day is lived in, in this reality. But this guy, of course, didn't get that. In his mind, I'm going to live forever. It never occurred to him that he might die that night, and God said, you're a fool. But he made one other mistake. He, he only thought about himself. He didn't realize he didn't own it. It wasn't his. He was a steward. He, he didn't live as if he was going to die. And finally, he didn't understand the importance of storing up treasure in heaven. He did not understand the value of, of heavenly wealth. He knew, of course, a lot about earthly wealth. His focus was on completely uh, on the wealth of this world, you know. He, he was rich in this world, but he didn't think at all about another kind of wealth that's talked about in, throughout the Bible, another uh, heavenly treasure where we can be storing up treasure up there. And I find this is a remarkable thought that, that, that we can actually be making deposits now into an eternal vault of some kind. I don't know what that even looks like. But Jesus talked about that. Well, let's read again the conclusion of this story in Luke 12, 20 and 21. It says, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you've prepared, whose, were they, whose will they be? And then he says, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. There, there, when God looks down, he doesn't view earthly wealth as rich, but there's a way in which we become rich before God, and somehow there's a way we store up treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus said that in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He was talking about wealth, and he said this, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, again, I don't, un I don't know what that looks like, you know, to collect because he's, he's likening it to collecting treasures on this, on this earth, so we know what that looks like. You know, we got we, our coin collection, we got our properties or whatever, all the things that we have, the cars, whatever we have. You know, we know what it is to collect stuff in this world, but he's, he talks here about collect stuff in heaven, treasure in heaven, because moth and rust don't destroy that. Where thieves don't break in and steal that, it's, it's eternal, it's, it's in a wealth that endures. And the importance of it is, he says, because where your treasure is, then, then your heart's going to be there also. So if our treasure is here, our heart's going to be here. But there's a treasure that we could have in heaven. Now, it raises the question, how do we store up treasure in heaven then? Again, we know how to do it on this earth, but how do you store up treasure in heaven? And I want to bring this home with, with really, I think, two ways in which we can be rich toward God or two ways in which we store up treasure in heaven. Now, there are, there are other ways we can store up treasure in heaven in terms of things we do. I think our deeds, our kindness, those things also, God's keeping an account of somehow. But when it comes to our wealth, there's two ways, and I think that th we do it. Number one is to advance Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus, in this section on finances, on wealth, in Matthew 6, the whole chapter's about that, a few verses after the ones I just read about, make sure you store up treasure in heaven, not on this earth. He says this in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. What are the things? The stuff of this world, your needs, your clothing. There's stuff he just talked about in Matthew chapter 6. You seek first the kingdom of God. And so it does raise the question, am I seeking first Christ's kingdom? 
Now, many of us grew up praying the Lord's Prayer, and this is really in line with that. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has designated that his people finance the work that he's trying to accomplish in this world. He uses Christians to do it. And when we do it, we store up treasure in heaven. And so if there's a ministry out there or a church out there, whatever, that's advancing the kingdom of Christ, doing a good work for Christ's kingdom, whether it's spreading the gospel or making disciples or whatever else, I think that's how we store up treasure in heaven. But there's a second way, and that is by caring for the needs of the poor. It's amazing how many verses there are in the Bible about caring for people who have needs, the poor. It's amazing. God really cares that God's people have a heart, to, if we have plenty, to help those who don't. A rich man once came to Jesus asking questions about eternal life. Part of his answer was this in Matthew 19, 21. He said, if you want to be perfect, in other words, complete, or if you want to dot your I's and cross your T's, if you want to be that kind of person, if you want to be perfect, Jesus told him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, by the way, the passage doesn't say go sell everything you have. And Jesus was obviously dealing with someone who, whose stuff was an idol in his life. And by the way, nowhere in the Scripture are we told that we're to sell everything, rich or not. And by the way, we are warned in Scripture not to desire what other people have. Our culture is pretty bad about that too. Looking at what someone else has, that's called envy, that's called covetousness, that's called greed. We don't want that either, you know. But we have plenty, and we have opportunities to help those in need. And I think when we give to those needs, when we help, when we do good works, it also stores up treasure in heaven. And Paul said the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. He said, instruct those who are rich. It says them there, but that's the context. Instruct those who are rich in this world to do what is good, because it's good deeds, Good deeds matter more than what you have. To be rich in good works. That's where you, if you want to be rich, be rich there. Be generous. Be willing to share. Sometimes we're just not willing to share. And then this is what happens because you'll then be storing up for yourselves a good reserve. It means a good foundation for the age to come. Again, I don't know what that looks like, but you're going to arrive there and find out that all this building you'd been done on this earth for the kingdom of God and to help others and the good deeds you did laid a wonderful foundation for all of eternity in this heavenly vault. So let me close with a question and then the quote. The, the question is this, have you ever considered what God might want you to do with what you have? I just want to encourage you to think about that. You know, how, how are you using what God has given you? What, what difference is it making for the next life and not this one? And then the quote is from Warren Wearsby. He said, wealth cannot keep us alive when our time comes to die, nor can it buy back the opportunities we missed while we were thinking of ourselves and ignoring, ignoring God and others. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you have given us so much, especially the greatest gift of all your son, I just think how Paul wrote in Romans that if you didn't hold back your very son from us, how much more will you freely give us all things? And therefore, you've called us to do the same and to imitate you and to make a difference in this world, that the things that we have in this life are not to be an idol for us, but a tool that's used for you and your kingdom and to make a good, positive difference in this world. 
Help us, O oh Lord, to apply these things. Give us the grace, O oh Lord, to say yes to wherever you would lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.